Psalm 145. When you have it, stand up on your feet if you don't mind. We're going to look at the first seven verses. It's a beautiful psalm. We're going to look at the first seven verses, though, here this morning. The Bible reads like this. David wrote, he said, I will extol you, my God, my King, and I will bless your name forever and ever. Every day, I will bless you. I will praise your name forever and ever. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. His greatness is unsearchable. One generation shall praise your work to another, shall declare your mighty acts. I will meditate on the glorious splendor of your majesty and of your wondrous works. Men shall speak of the might of your awesome acts, and I will declare your greatness. They shall utter the memory of your great goodness and shall sing of your righteousness. Father, thank you for your word this morning. It is a lamp unto our feet. It is a light into our path. I pray, Holy Spirit, speak to our hearts this morning in a powerful way. In Jesus' name, amen and amen. Will you be seated this morning? One time, give me a good good morning. We are so glad that you're here. And if you're watching online, we wish you were here with us. We, uh, we've got several families out because this is the first weekend of college move-in, and they've got some parents' things today, so we miss them. How many of you missed our group of teenagers that just went to college? I missed them this morning. They really added a lot. And, uh, but you know what? The thing is, that's what discipleship is. We get to roll over and teach some more and send out some more, and hallelujah, that's what we do. But uh, we're excited about that, and, uh, but we miss them this morning, and uh, hopefully uh, they tune back and watch their home church and, and hope that they stay connected with us. Amen. Well, this morning, we're going to continue our series entitled Legacy with a message this morning I've entitled Generational Legacy. Uh, over the last few weeks, we've been looking at various different angles. If you were here with us on week one, which would have been the first week of August, I uh, looked at what, did it, what does it look like to leave a legacy? And I asked the question, if somebody was standing in front of a congregation at your funeral, which by the way, if you didn't know this, statistics don't lie in this case, 10 out of 10 people die. So unless Jesus comes before that time, somebody is going to officiate our funeral. So I asked the question, what do you want people to say about you? I think it's very important that we do that, Jared, isn't it? I think it's important that we ask people and we ask ourselves, rather, what do we want people to say about us? And I, I've got to thinking about through the years, sermons I've officiated or, or rather attended, and I ask myself, who is this person that everybody is talking about? Because the Bible says, right, the Bible says that a tree is known by their fruits, and surely we hope people got their life right with Christ before the end, but there's some people who live like Al Capone, and the preacher made them look like the Apostle Peter. Come on, somebody. Everybody knows somebody like that. So anyway, I, I begin to ask the question looking from the end because God always looks from the end of a thing and goes backwards, the end from the beginning, saying how do we want ourselves to be known and to model our lives that way so that when we die, the preacher doesn't have to exaggerate at our funeral. Then last week, we looked at the Apostle Paul when he was modeling himself in front of the church, getting ready to depart and how he lived with integrity, he lived with intentionality, he lived with um, just a, a really right motive in front of them. And the people, whenever Paul left, it says that they fell upon him, they cried, and they wept sorely. 
Paul, at the end of his life in his epistle, writes these words, I'm all ready to depart. I'm ready to be poured out as a drink offering. Paul was saying, my life is empty. I've left it all on the table. I lived with no regrets. So last week, we talked about being a living witness. We went from, you know, kind of the uh, eulogy of our life to being a living witness because our legacy is built while we're alive. Amen? Hallelujah. We talked about how it's not your reputation that matters as much as it is your representation, who you represent. You represent Christ, and we're the only Bible that some people may ever see. But this morning, my friends, I have something burning in my heart that I want to share that's in a totally different aspect. This morning, I want to talk about our spiritual legacy in a message that I've entitled Generational Legacy. Everybody say that with me. Generational legacy. You know, in the Bible days, in the days of Abraham and, and Moses and those who went before us in the faith, they didn't have large printing presses like we have today. They certainly didn't have telegram or telephone or fax. They didn't have social media, Instagram, nowhere to tweet a message or anything like that. So there was the art of oral tradition or the passing down from one generation of the next of the stories of faith so that nothing was lost when one generation came up behind another. And so Moses, as he was writing in the law, inspired by the Holy Spirit, years and years after the Passover of Egypt, the Bible says that uh, in the days to come, when your children ask you why we celebrate the Passover, you can tell them that the Lord, with His strong, righteous right hand, delivered us and brought us out of the land of Egypt. So you can tell your son and your daughter the reason why we sacrifice the lamb, the reason why we drink the fruit of the cup. We, we celebrate that in communion today. The reason why we do that is to remember where the Lord had brought us from. And so there was something to be said about generation to generation passing down the legacy of faith that God has given us. And so if they weren't able to do that, there always was the fear of something being lost, being passed down from generation to generation. The stories of trials or victories or God's miracles and provision, His supernatural hand needed to be passed down from generation to generation so that they would know the God of their forefathers and have faith to walk with God in the hour and day in which they lived. You've got to understand something. We serve a generational God. If you look in the scripture, I'm encouraged by Elijah the prophet on Mount Carmel when he's dealing with the prophets of Baal right after a grueling, grueling encounter with an ugly woman by the name of Jezebel. Here's what the prophet did. He, he dug a trench. He, he put the wood. He laid everything ready. And then he looked up to heaven in the middle of a drought. And he said, he, he called upon the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. you got to ask yourself, why did he have to call on God that way? Could he not have just answered to Yahweh? Could he just not have answered to Jehovah? Could he not have answered to El Shaddai? Yes, he could have. But the prophet was calling upon the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. In essence, what he was saying is, 
wilderness. I'm calling on the God who provided in the wilderness. I'm calling on the God who provided supernaturally because I know if he did it for them, he will do it for me. And I'm reminding him of his promise over my life. And, I, and, and Elijah prayed, and fire fell down from heaven and consumed the sacrifice because he reminded the Lord of what he had did in times past. See, that's exactly the way it is in our generation. God has done great things. He's given us legacy to look at and to build upon, and it encourages and strengthens us. And so the importance of the oral tradition in the Old Testament was that nothing would be lost, nothing would be left behind for future generations. Church, this morning, I just want to encourage each and every one of us that you and I have a tremendous legacy. God has done great things. I love what the psalmist writes in Psalm 145. I want you to go back there with me, and we're going to just kind of cover some of this for a moment. Then we're going to launch into a history lesson real fast. I know the Lord will encourage you. Psalm 145, verse 1. Notice this. He writes, he says, I will extol you, my God, my King, and I will bless your name forever and ever. Every day. Somebody say every day. That means you got to make a choice. He said, every day I will bless you, and I will praise your name forever and ever. Great is the Lord, and greatly to be praised. His greatness is unsearchable. Notice this. One generation shall praise your works to another and shall declare your mighty acts. I'm going to stop right there. What the psalmist is trying to say is he's building upon that, that culture, that tradition of passing down things orally. And he's saying in our households, in our gatherings, in the places where we're coming together, we are going to praise your name, O God, from generation to generation. We're going to praise and declare your mighty name and declare your mighty acts. Can I tell you something this morning? It is vitally important for us to pass down our faith to the next generation. Can I tell you something? To have success in life without a successor is a failure. I want you to hear me. To have success in life without a successor is a failure. You see, we have to pass down our legacy. Some of y'all are very familiar with legacy. Some of y'all drove to work today in Legacy, right? Uh, There's many car names. Uh, Volkswagen, that's a last name. Uh, We have to understand Colgate. You probably brushed your teeth with some this morning. I hope you did. Look at your neighbor and say, I hope you brushed your teeth today. Colgate is a last name. Mercedes is a last name. Harley Davidson, last names. Wells Fargo, last names. People's names are connected to their legacy. And these people, they, 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 every time you buy their product, the reason why it's so expensive is you're investing in their legacy. And folks, you and I don't realize it, but every day we're building our legacy in the flesh, and we need to look back on what God has done, be encouraged by that, but also use that to encourage us of what he's able to do in the future. Because we don't work... In the realm of rewind, God always is going in the future. And he's always building. He, go, he said, I'm going from glory to glory. He didn't say, I'm going from glory to weakness. 
He said, I'm going to faith to faith. He didn't say, I'm going from faith to unbelief. God is always going from the next level to the next level. And it ought to be building from generation to generation to generation. The snowball ought to collect more steam as it gets from one generation to the next. And the psalmist said, we're going to share that from generation to generation. But I want to encourage you this morning to look with me at where God has brought us from. So if you're taking notes, write this down. Number one, put it by sign a piece of paper and, and just write a number one there and write this down. Number one, I want you to look at our foundation. Our foundation. The foundation of the church of the Lord Jesus Christ was founded no other than in the book of Acts. In Acts chapter 2, Jesus had resurrected the disciples, many of them, in Acts chapter 1, watched him ascend into heaven. And the, the angel adorned in white garments said, You men of Galilee, why do you stand here gazing into the heavens? The same Jesus which you saw go shall also come in like manner. And, and then in Acts chapter 2, the story picks up because the last thing, one of the last things Jesus told his disciples was to go into Jerusalem and to tarry until they received the promise of the Holy Spirit. And so they found themselves on the day of Pentecost everybody had come to Jerusalem for the feast and now they're in the upper room praying and I love that verse in Acts chapter 2 verse 1 every good every good Pentecostal knows this verse the Bible says that when the day of Pentecost was fully come they were all in one accord in one place and there came a sound from heaven it was like a mighty of a rushing wind and cloven tongues like as a fire sat upon each of them and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and they began to speak with tongues as the Spirit of God gave them utterance. There were many people in that room. Mary, the mother of Jesus, the disciples of Christ. But there was one whose name was Peter, whom Peter had previously denied the Lord at the, uh, at the, uh, uh, the confrontation of a little uh, a girl who was out in the street who recognized him with being with Christ. Peter denied the Lord, but there's something that happened to him. In this upper room, he grabbed a hold of something that changed his life. It was the infilling. It was the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And that same man named Peter, who denied Christ at the, uh, at the confrontation of a little girl, goes out into the crowd, blown by the wind into the streets, and points his finger into the crowd because many people were speculating, and they were criticizing, and they were being skeptical about what had happened. And the Bible says that Peter got up and he says these famous words, These men are not drunk as you suppose, being but it's just the ninth hour of the day. But this is that which was spoken by the prophet Joel, that in the last days I will pour out of my spirit upon all flesh. And Peter preached that gospel. And the Bible says that, that Peter topped it off and he said, this Jesus whom you crucified has poured this out. And they were pretty 
in their hearts and they begin to say, what must I do to be saved? And Peter said, repent and be baptized, every one of you in the name of Jesus, for the remission of your sins and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And he said, the promise is not just for those who are present in this room, not just for those who are present in the corridors of the streets. He said, but this promise is unto you and to your children and your children's children and as many as are far off, as the Lord your God would call. And on that day, men and women, 3,000 plus, were baptized in the baptismal pools there outside of the temple, and they followed Christ. And from that moment, the, the church started in a blazing ball of fire. These disciples who were gloriously baptized with the Holy Spirit became the first apostles, the 12 apostles, the foundational cornerstones uh, with Christ being the chief cornerstone. And, and from the prophecies of the prophets, the Bible says that the church was built upon the foundation of the apostles and the prophets with Christ being the cornerstone. The, the coming of Christ had come. The outpouring of the Holy Spirit had been blown into the world. And now the church of Jesus Jesus Christ was born. If you've been missing our series on Wednesday nights called Fire Starters, we call it Fire Starters for a reason. Because everywhere they went, they started fires. And I'm not talking about arson, my friend. I'm talking about the fire of the Holy Ghost. Paul and, and Peter and, and James and John and, and all of them, they went everywhere preaching the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ, seeing people born again, saved, delivered, set free, baptized in the Holy Spirit, uh, uh, free from demonic oppression. Everywhere they went, they saw the power of God in demonstration. And they saw God do great things. It was in those moments that we realized their preaching was powerful. They had no computer. They had no PowerPoint presentation. They had no speaker. Thank God for technology. I just think sometimes we think it has to take all that. They had none of that. But what they had was the anointing of the Holy Spirit. That the preached Word of God was not a sermon that they got off of YouTube. It wasn't a sermon that they got off a blue letter Bible from the commentary notes. But they got it straight from prayer and getting in the face of God. Their preaching was full of conviction. It demanded a response. Where people would listen and they would say, what must I do to be saved? People were running and, and doing everything they could to give their lives to Christ. Thousands were baptized, filled with the Holy Spirit. And then from the book of Acts, here's what we see. Miracles, signs, wonders confirmed the word that they were preaching. People were brought back to life. The sick were healed. The, the, the blind eyes were opened. The deaf ears were unstopped. Those who had paralysis were made straight. The Bible says those who had mental issues, uh, many people who were possessed of devils, they were mute and, and were able to speak. They were set free by the power of God. Then they went out and they made disciples. They planted churches. Paul blazed a trail, and Peter blazed a trail, and, and they built churches, and they, they went and started these churches by the power of the Holy Spirit. They established elders and picked up and moved somewhere else and started a great thing. Folks, I think that if you and I look at the book of Acts, we can see that we have a great foundation. 
The church was built on a great foundation of the hunger, the prayer, and the supernatural power of God. Our foundation. Sure. These early disciples, many of them were run out of town. Many of them were beaten and left for dead. And all but one of the original 12 died a martyr's death. John is the only one, history tells us, escaped. He wrote the, the, the uh, book of Revelation as he escaped to the Isle of Patmos where he was in prison there. But, uh, but he, they tried to boil him in oil and he escaped and died as an old man. I want you to think about something. That's the foundation that all of us in this room, in fact, I will go as far to say as this. It doesn't matter if you're Baptist, you're Methodist, you're Pentecostal, Presbyterian, whatever flavor of Baskin-Robbins ice cream you are, that's your, that's your foundation. You know how I know? Because there was no denominations in the Bible. Jesus didn't establish a Methodist church, a Baptist church, an AG church, a Church of God church, a United Pentecostal, or a divided one. He didn't establish any of that. It was all one church, and they were all Spirit-filled, and they all believed in the gifts of the Spirit, and they all believed in the power of God. So listen, don't you let somebody tell you you're weird because you come to one of them kind of churches. I think churches that don't have this are weird. Everybody wants to talk about a new normal. Let's get back to the old normal. Hallelujah. We were laid on a foundation, a biblical foundation. I'm going to begin the journey here. I hope you stay with me. Matthew 24, Jesus told his disciples about a prophetic event that would happen in their lifetime. This morning, I'm not talking about the tribulation period or the rapture or anything like that. But in the beginning of Matthew 24, Jesus is sitting. And you have to apologize. I'm going to give you some more scripture. But if I gave you everything I have to give to you this morning, you, you would leave here with a migraine, I promise you. So just trust me. Matthew chapter 24, the disciples are sitting with Jesus on the Mount of Olives, which overlooks the Temple Mount. And Jesus looks at them and he says, you see these stones? Speaking of the stones that built the temple, he says, not one of them will be left upright. All of them will be overturned. And in the year 70 AD, the Roman legion came in and destroyed the temple. There have not been a temple in place there since that time. There is a Muslim mosque, the Dome of the Rock, that shares that location right now. And the Bible tells us that in the end times, in the tribulation period, there will be a, a third temple that's rebuilt. But that second temple, of the, what we call the second temple period, that, that temple was destroyed. All of the Jews were dispersed. Other nations took their land. And the Romans came in and totally just got control. At that moment, the church that Jesus built went through something historians called the Dark Ages. In other words, the Romans came in, made the church a, a, a state government-type-led church, and then we have things that are historical, like the Crusades, and people were murdered and killed, and all of that was done in the name of Jesus, and Jesus didn't have anything to do with it. These Romans put priests into place that spoke Latin, and at that moment, the, every 
copy of the scripture that people could read in any type of legible language was done away with and the official translation of the Bible was in Latin and it was held by the Roman church. Or shall I say, lest I offend anybody, the Roman Catholic church. They held that and the common people were not allowed to read the Bible. That's why we came up with things like purgatory where if your loved one was not that bad but they weren't that good they went to a middle place and if you gave the church enough money you could buy their way out friend that's a great fundraiser but it's a doctrine of devils the bible says as a tree falleth so shall it lie amen you don't have a second chance Then they begin to deal with stuff like rosaries and confessing to the priest. Even though Jesus, when he resurrected, ripped the veil and said, I want no more separation from me and my people. I want them to come straight to me. Listen, a pastor's there to encourage you. A pastor's there to teach you. But the pastor's not there to be a priest for you in that sense. We all can go straight to God and receive the help that we need in a time of trouble. Are you with me? And in these dark ages, there was a man by the name of Martin Luther. He was a monk. He was of German descent. And, and he, he was a little rebellious. And he found out a way to get the scriptures translated. And he he's like started reading it for himself and, and said, whoa, hold on here, Houston. We got a problem. And so what he did was he nailed the 95 thesis to the door of the church and ended up getting himself killed. Out of that came the Protestant Reformation. And Luther, being the founder, the first movement out of this dark age was the Lutheran church. And out of the Lutherans came various movements and different things of that nature. Along came the Baptists, along came different people. And and so it was great. The Lord began to restore all of these lost truths to his people. Justification by faith, water baptism, the priesthood of the believer. All of these things that had been lost in the dark ages... Now coming back to light. And in the late 1800s, y'all okay with this? In the late 1800s, there was a rumble in the southeast corner of the United States where some people came together and prayed. And children began to pray. And a revival broke out. Strange things began to happen. Things that had not been seen. People people were shaking under the power of God. And people were baptized in the Holy Spirit. Speaking with tongues. You got to understand it had been hundreds and hundreds of years. Before this. Since this was taught and practiced. It was lost in the dark ages. Many denominations who came out of those dark ages. Saw the continuation of the gifts of the Spirit. As no longer necessary today. But out of that movement in the southeast corner of the U.S., the Church of God, Cleveland, Tennessee, was born. And still, all of their foundation and and most of their stronghold is in that region. But there's something that happened at the turn of the 1900s. Up in Topeka, Kansas, there was a Bible school, the Apostolic Faith Mission Bible College. and There was a man named Charles Parham there. Charles was... was, um, Not a full-fledged Pentecostal, but he believed in the gifts of the Spirit. He believed in laying on of hands. He was greatly influenced by many people. 
And all of a sudden, in the early 1900s, up comes this man. His picture's on the screen by the name of William Seymour. William was a one-eyed, blind and one-eyed black man. He couldn't see. Everybody says, how do I know God has a sense of humor? Because he used a one-eyed black man whose name was Seymour. That's how I know God has a sense of humor. But Seymour was reading in his Bible. And I'm going to show you something this morning. Number one, we wrote our foundation. Number two, I want you to talk about our founders. But leave this picture on the screen. Our founders. William Seymour was reading in his Bible. And he saw that in the book of Acts, these people were baptized in the Holy Spirit and they began to speak with tongues. And, and Seymour stopped and he goes, wait a minute. I've never heard anybody teach this as long as I've been a Christian. He began to search of other people who've heard it. He said, I haven't heard that before. They, people just seem to skip over that place. He said, so I wonder if it's anywhere else in the Bible. So Seymour went over from Acts chapter 2 and he finds himself in Acts chapter 8 where Peter's preaching at Cornelius' house. And the Holy Spirit is poured out upon them. And the Bible says that while Peter was yet speaking, the Holy Spirit uh, uh, confirmed the word and fell on them. And they spoke with tongues and prophesied as we did at the beginning. These Gentile believers received the baptism of the Holy Spirit. So Seymour goes, huh, well, that's interesting. So he goes, I wonder if it's anywhere else. So he, he goes some more, and he finds some inferences, but he's looking for concrete. So he finds himself in Acts chapter 19, where the apostle Paul, verse 1 through 4, is passing through the, through the upper coast of Ephesus, and he finds some disciples of John. John had baptized them. They heard about Jesus, and John says, hey, have you received the Holy Spirit since you believe? And he said, no, We've not even heard that there be a Holy Spirit. So Paul laid his hands on them, and Acts 19.4 says, and they were filled with the Holy Spirit, or 6 rather, 19.6, says they were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with tongues and prophesied. He goes, wow, that's three in a row. I wonder if there's any else. So he looked back in Mark chapter 16 where Jesus said that his disciples would be, they would speak with new tongues. And so Seymour says, wow, this is pretty cool. So he's all excited, right? He's all excited. He found something that he had never seen before. Let me ask you a question. How many of you, listen, obviously there's nothing new in the Bible. It's always been there. But it's kind of like used cars. It's not you, but it's new to you. Anybody ever found anything like that? You said, wow, I didn't know that was in there. Well, he was excited. So he went to tell his Bible school teacher. And his Bible school teacher said, man, I'm not hearing that. And so he put him out. And Seymour already had a disadvantage. He was blind in one eye. His second disadvantage was the color of his skin. Really unfortunate. The racism at that time was extremely high. So he found himself down to Houston. And he was going to share it down there. And they locked him out of the church. They didn't want his kind. So he picked up a newspaper. And in talking to somebody, he heard that there was a, a prayer meeting. Y'all remember those? That's part of why I'm preaching this. There was a prayer meeting in a little bad part of town in Los Angeles in a little shoddy house on Bonnie Bray Street where some older women were there praying a hole through heaven. And William Seymour said, well, I think I ought to go to California. He started singing the Jed Clampett song, you know. 
he struck oil and he was going to go to the promised land. Beverly Hillbillies, you understand, right? All right. So he said, all right, I'm going to go this way. So he took, he took the long journey and he found himself there. And as they were accustomed to, they said to all their visitors, anybody have anything they want to share, anything they want to encourage? Now, what's interesting, let me back up just to 30 seconds. Seymour, although he saw this in the Scripture, he had never experienced it himself. And they asked him about it. They said, well, do you speak in tongues? He says, well, I, I haven't received it yet, but I see it in the Word of God. And they said, well, don't you think that's a farce? And I love what he said. He said, just because I haven't experienced it doesn't mean it's not true because God's Word is higher than my, than my experiences. Man, a whole lot of people would just really do better in life if they grabbed that reality. Because, listen, God, we have to line ourselves up to God's Word. God's Word doesn't have to line itself up to us. So listen, listen here, listen here. So what happened, what happened is, is that, that, so they said, hey, do you want to share? He said, sure. So he gets up and begins to preach. And as he begins to preach and share his experience, he received the baptism of the Holy Spirit mid-sentence. And he's like, and everybody's looking around. And, and he's, 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 he's a bit ashamed of his eyesight. The, some, some people say he would take a milk crate and, and cover it over his head because he was embarrassed of his look. And that all of these women began to receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit. It was powerful, powerful. Word began to spread and people in the community began to come out. They began to come out and people began to fill the streets and they would fill the house first. And when the house was full, they, they came out to the porch. And the porch actually collapsed because they couldn't get that many people out there. There were reports during this prayer meeting at, at the Bonnie Bray house that the fire department would be called. And they were coming to put out a fire. The problem is that it wasn't a physical fire. But literally, bypassers and people walking by, when they would look, they would see in the Spirit, God was showing them flames coming out of the top of the church where the people were praying, the house, rather, where people were praying. And they came to put it out. But yet, when these firefighters come to put out the fire, they found themselves arrested by the presence of God, many of them getting saved. Then the religious people begin to show up. The Presbyterians and, and the Baptists and those who would say, oh, that's a bunch of nuts. That's, they're that, they're, they're demon-possessed. And many of them came to shut them down. They came with a heckle and a, and a criticism in their heart. But when they got there, which, by the way, this is not all make-believe. This is all in National Historic Registry. If you walk down downtown Los Angeles, I've been there twice, the, the newspaper articles of the things that happened in Azusa Street are plastered all over telephone poles. If you do a historic tour of the town, you get taken by all of these locations. What I'm telling you is not some religious poppycock today, it's historical fact. So they came to shut down the meeting. And all of a sudden... When they begin to open their mouth to criticize, just like John the Baptist's father, Zechariah, the Lord cleaved their tongue to the roof of their mouth where they couldn't speak. And they had to listen to the message. They had to listen to the preaching. And when it was over, uh, their, their tongue was loosed. And when they tried to criticize, many of them fell upon their knees and gave their lives 
to Jesus Christ. They outgrew this little house, and so a man said, I run the homeless mission on Azusa Street. Would you like to come and have our location? So they moved to Azusa Street, and for years upon years upon years, they got there, and they prayed, and they prayed, and they sang, and they preached. Newspapers came to debunk them. The people came, and they brought the sick. They brought the deaf. They brought the blind. They brought all kind of people who needed a touch from God, and they were healed. There are historical records of people at Azusa Street who came in with gorders the size of your fist that after prayer they had fallen onto the ground or fallen out in a cloth and they left there healed by the power of God. This were what the founders of our early movement preached, practiced, and believed in. Seymour took that message to Azusa Street, and it birthed a fire. Now listen to this. This meeting drew all kind of people, the Baptists, the Methodists, all of these different people, the Episcopalians. Many of them came. They were baptized with the Holy Spirit. They began to speak with tongues, and, and they're like, whoo, maybe it is real. And they, they got filled with fire and excitement. And so, like Seymour, they wanted to go and share their experience with their peers. So many of them went back home and found themselves without a church home, without a church family. They were ostracized. They were called mental. They were told they were demon-possessed. And they were told never to come back. So all of these people came back together and they said, we don't have a home. We don't have a people. We don't have a tribe. But see, one of the realities that was overemphasized through tongue and interpretation and, and prophecy and preaching and singing in Azusa Street was the imminent return of the Lord Jesus Christ. They preached that you ought to be ready at any moment to meet Jesus. They had such an urgency to share the gospel with anybody who would listen without cost or without avail. They wouldn't do anything possible to take the gospel around the world. And so these people came together and they said, we have no way to accomplish our mission. We have no home to belong to. We have no tribe. And so through fasting and prayer there was a group of people who said let's form a missionary organization you still with me they said let's form a missionary organization and so they left Azusa Street and in 1914 there's a picture here they found themselves on the streets of Hot Springs Arkansas from Los Angeles delegates from 20 different states and missionary locations, several of them from around the world, they met here. And they said, we don't know what to do, but we're going to pray. So in this 1914 meeting, they began to pray and ask God for wisdom. And out of this came direction. Out of this came vision. Out of this came a movement centered on the full gospel and missions to take the gospel around the world. Out of this group right here, a man arose. Here's a picture. His name was Ian Bell. It's the next picture that's on the screen. That's the very first general overseer, general superintendent of the Assemblies of God. Ian Bell, uh, along with their leadership, formed a missions organization. 
And with that missions organization, they formed a doctrinal statement. That doctrinal statement are these truths that you and I hold to today. We call them the 16 fundamental truths of the Assemblies of God. And much like the rest of our brethren, they're pretty much the same. They boil down out of those 16 four distinctives. Are you ready for them? Number one, Christ is our Savior. Number two, Christ is our healer. Number three, Christ is the baptizer in the Holy Spirit. Number four, Christ is our soon returning King. And these people, with the the power of the Holy Spirit, left this meeting with an assignment to change the world and to turn it upside down. Out of this movement, great men like F.F. Bosworth, Smith Wigglesworth, many other men and women of God blazed the trail across this nation with the full gospel. They had nothing but a word from God. Literally, you're sitting in the aftermath of these great men and women of God. Are you with me this morning? We do things a little different today. But in the days in which these men and women lived, if they wanted to plant a church, there was no matching funds. Not against that. I'm just telling you what there wasn't. There was no matching funds. They didn't look at a map and choose a cool place to live. They didn't do a demographic study to see what percentage of each people group lived in a place. They didn't do psychological exams or anything like that. No. What did they do? They got on their faces and they prayed and they pushed a plate back and they fasted until they heard from heaven and with nothing more, many of them then lent in their pockets, got on their horses with their wagons and their wives and their kids and their blankets and they set out throughout all of the United States to plant churches. But let me tell you how they planted them because there were No full gospel churches. They found a plot plot of land. They threw up a tent, some poles, some sawdust, and they had church. These trailblazers preached these four cardinal truths. They preached Jesus was our Savior. He's the only way to heaven. They preached that Christ was our healer. And each night at every meeting, they laid hands on the sick and saw God supernaturally deliver from things that doctors testified were nothing more but miracles. They Number three, at every service, they emphasized the necessity of being baptized in the Holy Spirit as a way to help us live a holy life and to be a soul winner. And then they also emphasized the urgency of the hour by teaching that Jesus was coming soon and we needed to be ready. These tent revivals, these brush arbors, they were filled with converts. People would come and they would give their lives to Christ. And with these new families, they would start a church and, and, and raise up a pastor, much like the Apostle Paul. And then they would go on to the next town. I don't have time this morning to to get into every minuscule detail, but if you knew the history, this church was founded in that same very similar way by revival, by a word from God, by somebody that had a, a, a passion to see God do something. There was an urgency. My friend, that's the legacy we've been handed. That's the legacy we've been handed. We've looked at our foundation. We've looked at our founders. But friends, we got to look at our future. 
We've got to look at our future. Go back with me to Psalm 145. And I want you to look at, let's start at verse number three. Great is the Lord, greatly to be praised. His greatness is unsearchable. Notice this, one generation shall praise your works to another and shall declare your mighty acts. Stop right there. We've got to look at our future. I want you to notice one of the foundational things of our previous generation was the sharing of the faith from one generation to the next. That's encouraging to me. But folks, I want to, I want to issue you a warning today. I want to issue a warning. It's one of the most tragic verses of the Old Testament. And there's New Testament backup for this verse. Because God's a generational God. Somebody say generational. Look at Judges chapter 2 verse 10. Notice this with me. The Bible says that when all of that generation had gathered together to their fathers, that's a, that's a polite way of saying they died. When all of that generation had gathered to their fathers and another generation rose after them who did not know the Lord, nor the work which he had done for them in Israel. Did you hear what I said? There arose a generation after them. After what? After the wilderness miracles. After manna. After quail. After honey from a rock. Water from a rock. After all of those things. After seeing God's hand at work in that generation. Something happened. Where the torch was not transferred. Folks, hear me this morning. Let that not be our testimony. Did you hear what I said this morning? What a tragic verse that all of the good in one generation can be lost in another if we don't become intentional about passing the baton to the next generation. Let me give you another prophetic New Testament warning from Jude. Jude, verse 3 and 4. Look at this. Jude, beloved, he says, While I was very diligent to write to you concerning our common salvation, I found it necessary to write to you, exhorting you to contend earnestly for the faith which was once delivered to the saints. For certain men have crept in unnoticed, who long ago were marked out to this condemnation, ungodly men who turned the grace of God into lewdness and deny the only Lord God and, and Savior, Jesus Christ. Folks, I want you to notice what Jude wrote. He says, and this was way back then. He said, I, I find it necessary to urge you to contend for the faith it means to make war for it, not to let it go, not to let it slip through your fingers. Because even Jude, in their day, here's what he was saying. People have came in and they've turned the grace of God into lewdness or lasciviousness. We're seeing that today. We're saying people say, grace, grace, doesn't matter how you live. Grace, grace, you can get drunk if you want to. Grace, grace, you can do whatever you want. Grace, grace, God accepts you just the way you are, sin and all. And friends, listen to me. You and I, if we're going to have a future that's worth writing about in the history books of heaven, you and I are going to have to hold on and contend for the faith. Come on, somebody. 
We ought to contend for the faith and, and reject a watered-down substitute. Our forefathers, I'm getting ready to close. I heard somebody in their spirit, they said, thank God. Hallelujah. Listen to this. I'm passionate about this. I'm passionate about this. I've been called a nut before. And I say, yeah, I'm a nut. I'm just screwed on to the right bolt. Hallelujah. I want to be so full of the power of God, a mosquito bites me. He flies away singing, there's power in the blood. Hallelujah. Listen to me. You and I have to be intentional about what type of legacy we're leaving. When we look back at the past, we look at the book of Acts, we look back at our forefathers who trailed, uh, blazed a trail, did not know where they were going, didn't know where the resources would come from, but with faith and a word from God, they found themselves planting and tilling and, 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 and laying foundation for God to do great things. You and I have to be intentional in this generation. You say, Pastor, what's a generation? Well, there's two ways to look at it, two schools of thought. There's some people who believe a generation is between this age and that age. But biblically, when you look at a generation, it's those who are living at that time. And so guess what? If you're old, it doesn't exempt you. If you're young, it doesn't exempt you. Every generation has a responsibility to share the faith, the legacy, the history to every generation. Pastor, why? Give me just a few more moments. Why? Because we are closer now than we have ever been. I have preached the prophetic signs to you. I've, I've done all those types of things. And what we're seeing happen is what the scripture said would happen. There is a great falling away happening simultaneously as an outpouring of the Holy Spirit. We're seeing two things happen at the same time. I'm just a young guy. I'm just 39 years old. I got a young body but an old heart. Listen, folks, I still believe the old way works. Sometimes when I look at altar calls today, or I look at the request for prayer meetings, I see our engagement in worship. In my heart, I say, God, don't let us be that generation that fails to pass the torch to the next. We've got to have a generational legacy. Listen, folks, let me just give you, give you this really quick. There's some we musts that we have to do. Are you ready? We must teach them the importance of the Word of God. Not self-help, not motivational speaking, not out-of-context homilies. We must teach them the importance of the unadulterated, infallible, inspired Word of God. 
If we don't teach them, who will? Next, we've got to teach them the necessity of being baptized in the Holy Spirit. I don't know how many of you have shopped for a new car lately, but they've got all type of options. And especially if you're buying one new, they say, do you want this? Do you want that? Do you want this? Do you want the navigation? Do you want the power steering? Do, uh, do you want all these things? And you can say, yes, yes, no, no. I want this. I don't want that. It's amazing to me how many people treat the baptism of the Holy Spirit like a third option row seat in a truck. The baptism of the Holy Spirit, my friend, for the believer is not optional equipment. It's necessary equipment. And if you just treat it as something you can take or leave, you're going to miss out. You say, well, do I have to have the baptism of the Holy Spirit to go to heaven? No, but you got to have it to live on this earth, man, because there's some devils out there. You're going to need some power. Thirdly, we got to teach them the significance of meeting with God in a place of prayer. In a place of prayer. God forgive us. So many times our prayer times are like this. God bless me, my four, and no more. And we're back up just like that. And as long as our bank account is good, and as long as our 401k is good, and as long as our kids are semi-okay, we're all right. We don't really need God till tragedy breaks forth in our life. And then we're like, oh God, please, please help me. When God's really saying, if you would have just stayed with me in the first place, I could have helped you navigate some of this stuff. We got to teach them the importance of meeting with God at a place of prayer. That an altar is not something to be afraid of or ashamed of. An altar is not just a place if you've committed adultery, although it's a great place for that. An altar is not a place just for if you cheated on your taxes, and it's a good place for that. An altar is not a, 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 the place for if you got bad language or you have a, a bad habit, and it's a place for that. An altar is a place for you to surrender to the Lord. almost finished we got to teach them the importance of church attendance so many people today I don't need the church you may tell you you don't need it till you need it till you need a preacher to do your funeral or you need a church to pay your light bill or you need somebody to save your marriage come on somebody the Bible says forsake not the assembling of yourself together even the more so as many do. But we should not do it as we see the day approaching. Don't forsake it. When your children look at you, church, do they see ball games and cheerleading competitions? Do they see extra work and overtime? Do they see everything else be of more importance than the house of God? Do your children see you have money for everything else but not the missionary? Everything else but not the tithe. Friends, listen. If we don't teach them the importance of the church and the importance of generosity, in 20 years they may not have a church to go to. Are you still with me? Last, and I'm finished. We've got to teach them the importance of their service to God with their God-given gifts, talents, and abilities and the way we do that is by example amen it's monkey see monkey do 
can close your Bibles and stand with me this morning. I don't even know what to call this. A sermon, a history lesson, I don't know. I know it was a word from God, but here's the word of the Lord for us today. We've got to be intentional at having a legacy, a generational legacy, so that you and I have something to pass to the next generation. Understand me. I'm not talking about styles, building styles, constructs. I'm not talking about any of that. I'm talking about the core, essential part of who we are. We are spirit-filled. We are missional. We believe the Word of God. The Bible is our foundation. I want to ask every person this morning in this place to close your Bible. I want you to bow your head for a moment. I sense such a serious moment in this place today. Let me make something painfully clear. I'm not teaching you this morning that the AG is the only way. We are a boat in a big ocean with a bunch of other boats who are trying to tell people about Jesus. Other churches are not my enemy. But what I am telling you is our foundation is Pentecostal. Our foundation is prayer. Our foundation is fasting. It's seeking God, having faith, believing in the supernatural. And friends, listen to me. These stories that we tell our children about what happened 30 years ago when grandma was praying at the altar... We got to have some grandma experiences today or you're not going to have anything to pass back. First thing, every head bowed, every eye closed. Nobody looking around. You're in this room. You don't know Jesus Christ is your Lord and Savior. Most important. I stand on the foundation of my forefathers with an urgency of the imminent return of Christ that I believe it could be morning, night, or noon. It could be in the next few moments. But if he were to come, would you be ready? If you were to die today and your chin were to drop down on a lifeless chest and your heart was to stop beating and oxygen to stop pulsating through your veins, would you be ready to meet the Lord Jesus? That is the most single, solitary, most sobering, important question that anybody will ask you today. Not what you have for lunch, what you're going to have for lunch, not what you're going to do this weekend, anything. The most important question is do you know Jesus? I'm asking you today, every head bowed and every eye closed,